Psalms that will take us through the rest of the summer. If any of you are from an Episcopalian or Anglican background, you're familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. It's a collection of prayers that can be used collectively or individually. A prayer book that I've used uh, myself in personal devotions. You'd be interested to know that the New Testament saints had a prayer book as well, and their prayer book was the Book of the Psalms. You find that the Psalms are the book of the Old Testament that's quoted the most frequently in the New Testament, alluded to the most frequently in the, in the New Testament, quoted from the most extensively. We discover as you read through the New Testament that, uh, that the, the source that these New Testament saints turned to for encouragement and strength most frequently was the book of, book of the Psalms. One of the reasons that the Psalms are particularly helpful to us is that what, what the Psalms do is validate for us the whole uh, realm of our emotional life, our emotional experiences. You cannot read through the Psalms without coming to the conclusion that emotions are okay. There is nothing wrong with feeling emotions, with having them, with recognizing them, with struggling with them, with verbalizing them. Emotions are are okay. As you read through the Psalms, you find that, that every possible emotion that a human being can experience uh, are, are found here, from rage and anger to sorrow to grief to ecstasy to joy to pain to heartache, discouragement, hope, depression. The whole range of, of emotions are found on the pages of these Psalms. And this becomes a tremendously helpful book for us then to turn to when we are struggling with with emotions and seeking to come to grips with them and understand them. Another thing that's striking to me along that line is that the authors of all of the Psalms, as far as we know, were men. And so we discover that it's okay for men to, to have feelings and to struggle with these things and to verbalize them. And this becomes a very helpful guidebook then to, to work through the emotional feelings that we all, all have. If you glance through the Psalms, you'll discover that there are actually five books of Psalms. At the end of Psalm 42, I believe it is, you'll find uh, that book two begins with Psalm 43, and there are other places along the line, five of them all together. So the Psalms were collected over a period of centuries, like tributaries, which feed into a mighty river. And Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a, as a gateway or an archway into the collection of Psalms, and so we will study these over the next couple of weeks, and hopefully this will serve as an introduction to you to this rich body of literature and an encouragement to pass through this gateway into personal study of the Psalms yourself. I choose that gateway analogy um, uh, on, on purpose. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that very early in Pilgrim's journey, he came to a narrow, wicket gate, and Pilgrim was carrying a heavy burden on his back, and as he approached this wicked gate, he was faced with one of two choices. There were only two choices that he had in life. One was to enter this narrow, wicked gate, which would lead to the celestial city, and along the way, he was told, he would find a place to drop this burden, be relieved of this load he carried. The only other alternative was to turn back, still carrying that burden, to the city of destruction. And that's the contrast, really, that the writer brings to us in Psalm 1. If you'll notice in verse 6, to just kind of take a sneak preview of the end of the psalm, he contrasts two ways in this book, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is a path which leads to life. The way of the wicked is a path which leads to death. 
And he is facing us with these two alternatives, only two choices in life, he says, that, that you have. Really only two choices. Which of these two paths will you pursue? Which of these two paths will you walk? One is narrow, bumpy, uh, it's rocky, but it leads to life. The other may be broad, inviting, spacious, but it leads to death. And so he challenges us with these two options in life and encourages us to choose the narrow, wicked gate. Let's begin our study in verse 1. You will notice as we go through the psalm that this psalm is, can be grouped in three pairs of two verses. Verses 1 and 2 belong together, 3 and 4 belong together, and 5 and 6 belong together. And we'll draw those parallels and contrasts as we go. He begins this way, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Begins by using the word blessed. This is a Christian code word which we need to decode. It's simply a word that means happiness or happy. So he begins his psalm by saying, How happy is the man or woman, he's using man generically here, how happy is the man who does not, etc., etc., etc. So what he is introducing us to is a a way, an approach to life, a path to life, which will lead to happiness, to a sense of fulfillment, to a sense of completeness, to a sense of of satisfaction. The Greek word that translates this Hebrew word is the Greek word makarios. It's the word that's used in in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so forth. That's the Greek word makarios, and it translates this, this Hebrew word for blessed. And the Greeks used that word, Makarios, to identify an island off the Greek coast in the Aegean Sea. It was called the Isle of Makarios, the Isle of Blessedness, or the Isle of Happiness, because the Greeks believed that this island was so abundant and so fertile, so richly supplied, that everything that you would need to be happy, to be content, could be found on the Isle of Makarios. And that's something what the writer is saying to us here. If we understand the approach to life that he lays out for us, we, we will discover an approach to life that will satisfy the deepest needs and hungers of the human heart. Now, first of all, you will notice that he says the happy man is the man who has learned not to do something. There's something, if we are going to discover happiness in life, there's something we first of all must reject, we must avoid, we must turn away from. We must not look for happiness in the wrong places. Stuart Briscoe illustrates this in his uh, book on Psalms, on Psalm 1. I'll read this at some length. I think you'll appreciate it as I do. It's fairly lengthy, but you'll see why. Stuart Briscoe is a pastor of a church in Milwaukee uh, now, but he is a transplanted Englishman, and he writes in Psalm 1 about his first visit to the United States. It was January 1, When I arrived on my first visit to the United States, I turned on the television and saw a picture the like of which I had never seen before. It was a rear-view shot of a row of big men in tight pants, bending over in such a fashion that they appeared to be putting intolerable strain on said pants. Behind them stood a man who seemed to have lost his temper completely. He was yelling and shouting, apparently because the other men had his ball and he wanted it back. Eventually, after much shouting, they gave it to him. 
He promptly gave it to one of his friends who ran a few steps and was treated to an awful beating by some other men wearing similar tight pants but of a different color. They were apparently very sorry about their behavior because after they had beaten him up, they gathered in a small group to pray about it. (laughs) They were not sincere, however, because they went straight back and did the same thing again. (laughs) After repeating this whole outrageous procedure about ten times, the man with the ball suddenly threw it about 60 yards to another man I hadn't noticed before. He caught it, ran a few yards did a funny little dance, and the crowd went wild. I thought I had stumbled on some religious festival. Subsequently, I discovered I was right (laughs) and was completely mystified until someone started to explain what was happening so that a newly arrived Englishman could understand. It appeared that the quarterback had so effectively faked a handoff to his running back that the defensive line and linebackers had played the run, leaving the receiver wide open to catch the pass and go in for a touchdown. And it all happened because the defensive players chased the man without the ball. The moral of the story is, if you are free to pursue happiness, don't be faked into pursuing it where it isn't. So he says the first thing we have to understand is where happiness is not found. And he said it is not found by walking in the counsel of the wicked. A uh, term walk is used in the scriptures to refer to the whole round of daily activities, the way in which we conduct our businesses and our personal life and our relationships and our, our families. And the first thing he says is happiness is not found by taking our counsel, taking our cues, taking our mindset, taking our advice about how we live everyday life from the wicked, taking their advice about how to live life. Now, by wicked, we tend to think of murderers and and rapists and degenerates and people who shoot people out of their cars as they drive by uh, on a Friday night. And wicked, the term wicked includes those people, but it's much broader. The NIV translates this uh, word in the, in the Revised Standard simply with the word godless or the ungodly. And what, what they mean by that is simply people who have no room or time in their life for God or for the things of God. Uh, the Arabic root from which this Hebrew word comes means to be loose or to be slack. So it just refers to people or to a mindset which does not take the things of God, does not take spiritual things seriously. It's indifferent to these things. does not care, is not concerned about the things of God and about, about his truth. And so the writer says the first thing we must learn to do is to not take our cues, not take our direction for ordinary life from the counsel that we will receive from the world. Ray Steadman summarized the counsel of the world, the mindset of the world, in three short phrases. He says the mindset, the counsel of the wicked, is three things. Me first, get it now, nothing bad will happen. The writer is saying the first thing we must do if we're going to be happy is not to follow the counsel of the wicked. Nor, he says, stand in the path of sinners. Stand has the idea of taking a position or taking a stand on issues where the world takes a stand. We're not to take our stance on any issue in life, whether it's a political issue or a personal issue, in the path of sinners, to take a stand where those who do not care about the things of God stand. The word sinner literally means, just like the Greek word for sinner, means to miss the mark, to take aim at a target, but to miss, to go, to go astray. And we're not to take our stand where those who do not care about the things of God 
take their stand. Nori says, are we to sit in the seat of scoffers? Scoffer is someone who ridicules spiritual things, who has a contempt for spiritual issues and for the revelation of God. And we are not to sit in the seat or the assembly of those who scoff at God's revelation. It's a sure ticket, he says, to a lack of satisfaction and contentment in life. Now, the counsel of the wicked can not only refer to just a general mindset of life, it can refer to specifics like marriage, for instance. I'm reading a good book on marriage right now by Dennis Rainey called Lonely Husbands, Lonely Wives. And and in that book, he discusses some of the threats to marital oneness. And one of them he identifies is what he calls the 50-50 plan, which which is the the, the approach to marriage that, that the world uh, advances and advocates. It's, a, it's an approach that sounds very logical on the surface. 50-50 is you do your half in the marriage relationship and I'll do my half and we'll have a happy marriage. But the point that he makes in, in the chapter is that the spouse who says, I will meet you halfway, dear, is usually a poor judge of distance. <laughs> it's very difficult to identify where the 50-yard line is. And there's a tendency then, he says, in marriage, if you take this mindset, the counsel of the wicked into marriage, to begin to withdraw when you feel your partner is not doing their half, not meeting you halfway. And pretty soon the ratio begins to shift. And instead of 50-50, it becomes 40-40, 30-30, and 20-20. We begin to recede and withdraw from each other. And then he goes on to contrast the biblical plan, which is, uh, w- which is in which each partner commits themselves to give unconditionally 100% of themselves by God's grace to the marriage and to their partner. Now, you notice a progression here from walking to standing to sitting. The progression, I think, is to an increasing hardness of heart, increasing uh, settledness with that mindset. We go from making decisions about everyday matters in life to taking stances on certain issues to sitting in the assembly of those who scoff at God's truth and identifying with those who have little use for God and for his revelation. What the writer seems to be alluding to is the is the progression, progressive dynamic in evil. Evil is never... Uh, complacent. It's never uh, stationary. There's always a progression toward deterioration and progression toward evil. Alexander Pope caught this dynamic of evil in this little poem. It says, Vice is a monster of such frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, too familiar her face, we must first endure, then pity than embrace. Seen that dynamic with homosexuality in our own culture just 17 years ago, the American Psychiatric Association classified it as a mental illness, considered as something which was abnormal, which was an aberration, which was destructive in human life, and something for which people needed treatment and needed help. And as it's been endured and then, then pitied, it has finally become embraced. And now in our culture, it's presented simply as a as an alternative lifestyle. We've seen the same thing with profanity uh, and uh, obscenity. Uh, if you've been following this Two Live Crew uh, story, their album has been banned in Florida and other places. Read in Time magazine that somebody made a study of the lyrics of this album to indicate, you how, to, indicate to you the way we have drifted in this dimension in our culture. 
10, 15 years ago, I think this would have been unthinkable to have an album sold over the counter to anyone, regardless of age, with was characterized in this way. It's a 79-minute album, and in 79 minutes, there are 226 uses of the F word and 163 uses of the B word to describe uh, women. I won't say the B word in case my mother picks up a copy of this tape and listens to it. Make me wash my mouth out with Life Boy. But, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have an album like that circulating widely and publicly and accessible like that. But evil has a progressive nature. It deteriorates over time if it's not challenged and faced. And so the writer warns us against allowing evil to take root in us and be accepted and tolerated in any corner of life because it begins to deteriorate life and relationships. One writer put it this way, Deterioration is never sudden. No garden suddenly overgrows with thorns. No church suddenly splits. No marriage suddenly breaks down. No nation suddenly becomes a mediocre power. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, certain things are accepted that once were rejected. Things once considered hurtful are now secretly tolerated. How blessed is the man, he says, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Then he turns his attention in verse 2 to, after describing what we must reject, he describes what we must embrace. But, notice that corner word in verse 2, the contrast, but the happy man, the blessed man, is the man whose delight, whose pleasure is found in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, law has a ring to us of kind of rigidity, and it sounds a little bit forbidding and, and un, unforgiving. But the word law simply means instruction or direction. So what the writer is saying to us is that happiness is found in delighting in God's instruction, God's directions about life. Those are the two choices, the writer says. The contrast in verse 1 is taking our counsel from the wicked versus taking our counsel in verse 2 from God through the Scriptures. His delight, the happy man's delight, is found in the law of the Lord. And then he goes on in the second half of that verse to say that the happy man is the man who meditates in God's instruction or God's directions day and night. A day and night is a figure of speech called a merism, two opposites to indicate totality. Similar figure of speech used in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens on one hand and the earth on the other, created everything, the universe, two opposites to indicate totality. So it says the mark of the man who is happy, who is content, who has found the Isle of Macarius, is that he meditates in the instruction of the Lord day and night, continually meditates on the instructions he receives from the Lord. Now, meditation is something which is different than just reading the Scriptures. I want to stress that. Reading the Scriptures is good, and, and it's necessary, and it's important. I'm all for one-year uh, Bibles and uh, one-year-through-the-Bible-reading plan because those kind of approaches of the Scripture acquaint us with the whole counsel of God, and they, they give us a breadth in the Scripture and in a range of understanding the, the, the spectrum of God's truth. 
But depth in the scripture is found not by simply reading the scripture, but by meditating on small portions at a time. And meditation is not even the same thing as memorizing the scriptures, although memorizing the scripture can often be a great help to meditating because then the scriptures are accessible to us at any moment to turn our thoughts to. But it's not the same thing as memorizing. In fact, the word meditate, the word that's translated meditate here, is used in the Old Testament to refer to the growl of a lion, kind of an inarticulate, deep kind of utterance. When it was applied to human speech, it means to murmur. Now, if you see someone murmuring, what are they doing? Well, somebody who is murmuring is talking to himself. And that, I think, is a very helpful definition of what it means to meditate on the Scripture. To meditate simply means to talk to yourself about the Scripture. To take a passage of Scripture, a paragraph, or a verse, or a phrase, sometimes even a word, and meditate, talk to yourself about that passage of Scripture. Ponder it. Turn it over in your heart. Turn it over in your mind. Explore the the meaning that the author intended to convey and begin to explore the ways in which that, that passage of Scripture touches your life and helps you understand life and understand your own uh, inner reactions and understand your relationships. Explore that. Illustrations that John Stott uses to describe what it means to meditate are illustrations like a cow chewing its cud, ruminating, uh, digesting, working on the same a source of nourishment again and again, extracting every last ounce of energy from it. Or a dog chewing on a bone, extracting every last ounce of flavor from that bone. Or like a child sucking on an orange, getting every last drop of liquid out of that orange. And that's the picture that he's offering to us here. And it's something I would encourage you to begin uh, to develop, to take smaller portions of Scripture and to meditate on them, to sink your roots deeply down into that portion of Scripture and ponder it and turn it over in your mind and explore its ramifications, its applications to life. Now, those who have meditated on the Scripture have made a tremendous impact uh, in the history of the Christian church. The Reformation, for instance, was really launched by Martin Luther's meditation on Romans 1.16. Uh, that's where uh, Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And Martin Luther had always understood by the term righteousness, he'd always understood by that a reference to his own behavior and to his own performance. And he felt that his acceptance before God then, because that was his understanding of righteousness, was something that depended upon him and his ability to produce and to perform up to specs. And he felt a constant sense of guilt. But as he meditated on that passage, he realized that what Paul was saying is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That the righteousness that Paul was talking about was not a righteousness that Martin Luther could achieve by his own effort, but a righteousness which was granted to him simply by his faith in Christ. And that his whole life was to be a progression of faith to faith. And when he understood that, it was as the heavens opened, he says, and he walked through. The gates to heaven opened, and I walked through with a glad heart. And he began to realize how badly the church in his day had misunderstood this truth and distorted it. So he began to challenge the official teaching of the church of his day with this liberating truth that we are accepted by God on the basis of our faith. And that was the fruit, see, of his, of his meditation 
on the scripture, not simply reading it, but digesting it and pondering it and thinking it over. Now, in verse 3, he traces the results in life, in contemporary life, of our meditation on the scripture. It says, these are the results you can begin to expect to see in your life if you sink your roots down into the scripture and meditate on what you find there. I believe he traces four results for us in life. He that is the man or woman, he's speaking generically here, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. Uses the picture of a, of a strong fruit-bearing tree to describe what happens to us, what we will be like if we meditate on the scriptures. First thing he says is he will be like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. That's a picture, I believe, of stability. If you see a tree that is firmly planted by a stream of flowing water, has its roots sunk deep into the soil, draws constant nourishment from this flowing water, a constant supply that feeds the roots and makes the tree strong and stable. Something I think that all of us long for in life is to be stable people, people who have, our, who have equilibrium and balance and are not easily shaken and rattled and, and blown over by adversity. And this is where it's found, is by sinking our roots deep into the scripture. It makes us stable. Went camping for a couple of days this week with another, our family, with another family, and the, uh, the uh, uh, father and husband in this other family has two priorities when he goes camping. His first priority is to get his tent trailer set up, and his second priority is to get his hammock set up, and his third priority is to get in his hammock, which he has just set up. And so he immediately did this, got his hammock strung between two trees, and lay down in the hammock, closed his eyes, and realized he had a sinking sensation. He was beginning to fall closer and closer to the ground. And as he opened his eyes, he saw that the reason was that one of the trees he tied his hammock to was falling over on him. Well, he bailed out of his hammock just in time to avoid camping disaster number 49. But it served to, as I was thinking about the scripture as, a, you know, as a, an illustration of what the writer is talking about here. Here was a tree that did not have its roots sunk deep into the soil, was not drawing nourishment, and therefore was, was weak, could not stand the pressure that was being placed on it. The writer says, if you want to be stable and strong and have equilibrium in life, then sink your, your roots deep down into the scriptures and meditate on them. Now, you never know when your meditation on the scripture will, will come in handy and when your efforts to, to dwell on God's word will, will prove useful. Remember when we first came to Idaho in 1979, just for the summer, we were house-sitting for some people out on Cloverdale Road and they had a little pasture out in the back, had a couple of horses, and it was my job one of the nights we were there to irrigate this pasture using siphon tubes, of which I had never heard nor seen in my life, but I was given instructions on, on how to do this didn't need those a lot in the Bay Area. And um, so I was given instructions how to set these siphon tubes. Piece of cake, I thought, no problem. So 6 o'clock Friday night comes time to set those siphon tubes, and I line my 25 or 30 siphon tubes out on the canal. and I go through all the instructions, cup one hand you know, over one end and drop the other down in, flip it over and let it go. Zip. Nothing. And I tried this over and over and over again. got f- more frustrated and more frustrated and more frustrated. The main thing that Debbie 
remembers about that episode is that I walked up and down that canal bank saying over and over again the words of James 1-2. Brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But you never know when it'll come in handy. Found out, by the way, that the reason was that the people upstream from us hadn't pulled their gates yet, and once the water level came up, no problem. But that was a long half hour, let me tell you. Yeah. But this is where, where stability comes from, where the ability to handle adversity and reversal comes is by sinking our roots deep into the Scripture. So the first result is stability. The second result is we bear fruit. It's a tree which yields its fruit in its season. There is a beauty about a fruit-bearing tree, and I think that's the point that he's making here, is as we, as we sink our roots deep into the Scripture, we become more beautiful, attractive, winsome people. We bear fruit. He is thinking here, I'm, I'm sure, of what Paul later came to refer to as the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, the character of Christ will become more evident in us as we meditate on his word and allow it to direct our steps. And we'll find as we sink our roots deep into the scripture that we will become more loving people and more joyful people, more peaceful people, more self-controlled people, uh, kinder and, and gentler, uh, to coin a phrase, people. Because the scriptures will begin to impart to us a beauty or a fragrance in life. Now you notice he says that this is a tree which yields its fruit in its season. I think that's very helpful because there's a word of patience in that, that as we meditate on the scriptures, it will produce fruit, but it will produce fruit in its season. In other words, we may not see fruit immediately right now. Remember Jesus' story of the fig tree. Remember that Mark makes the specific point that when Jesus approached that fig tree looking for figs, says he knew it was not the season for figs. So when Jesus went to that fig tree to examine it, he knew he wouldn't find any fruit on that tree because it was the wrong time of the year. Myself, I cannot wait for August to get here because of the fresh uh, picked corn on the cob that you can eat. We just gorge ourselves on it. I'd like to do that now, but it's not the season for corn to bear fruit, to be harvested in Idaho. Now, the encouraging thing, I think, about that is to realize that we need to be patient, that God is doing his work in us, even though we may not see the fruit yet. But just as a fruit-bearing tree begins to draw nutrients from the soil, and there are internal changes inside that tree where you cannot see it that eventually are going to issue forth in fruit, so the same process is taking place in us as we meditate on the Scriptures. We are slowly, internally being transformed, and, and eventually, in its season, in God's timing, we will see fruit demonstrated in life. And the next thing he says about this fruit-bearing tree, it's not only designed to be strong and stable, we may not see the fruit yet. But just as a fruit-bearing tree begins to draw nutrients from the soil and there are internal changes inside that tree where you cannot see it that eventually are going to issue forth in fruit, so the same process is taking place in us as we meditate on the Scriptures. We are slowly, internally being transformed and, and eventually, in its season, in God's timing, we will see fruit demonstrated in life. And the next thing he says about this fruit-bearing tree, it's not only designed to be strong and stable, not only designed to, to bear fruit, but it's an evergreen. Its leaf, he says, does not wither. 
This indicates this is a supernatural kind of tree. I'm not a botanist, but I don't know of any evergreen that bears fruit. If you can correct me on that, please do so. But this is a remarkable tree. It's a fruit tree whose leaf never withers. Fall and winter, when a normal fruit tree would be barren, dead, and lifeless, it's still luxuriant and green. And I think the writer's point is that as we meditate on the scriptures, we will demonstrate life in the most unusual circumstances, in circumstances where you would not normally expect to find vibrancy and vitality. Uh, you will find it. I read a story not too long ago of a woman whose husband had had a repeated series of affairs. It came to light after 12 or 13 years of marriage, and it rattled everything in her world. She had been betrayed by the man that she'd given her life to. He was in ministry, so his livelihood was threatened. The security of her of her family was placed in danger by his sin and betrayal. Uh, there was humiliation and shame involved in that for her. And she wrestled with things that under normal circumstances would have made her bitter uh, and angry. But what kept her from giving way to, to those impulses was a passage of scripture that she had memorized as a girl and that she thought on and, and pondered as she worked her way through this crisis. It was Ephesians 4.32, where Paul says, Be, be kind-hearted toward one another and forgive one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And as she meditated on that, God used that to, to bring her to the place where she could extend forgiveness to this husband who, who had so badly used her. And that became the, the key then to restoring that marriage and that relationship and getting the family uh, back on track. So there was consistency. It not only yields its fruit in its season, but its leaf does not wither. So meditating on the scriptures holds out the promise of making us more stable people, more beautiful people, and more consistent people. And lastly, he says, in whatever he does, he prospers. Everything he touches, he causes to prosper. Now, when we think prosperity in our culture, we naturally think in terms of material prosperity, but the scriptures never settle for that. It thinks of what what are true riches indeed. And I think the point that he's making to us is as we meditate on the scripture, we begin to enrich the lives of other people, the things that we touch, the things that we're involved in, the relationships that we are involved in begin to be touched more and more by, by God's grace. And the people around us and the projects we're involved in are enriched by our participation. If we're involved in some kind of a committee that committee is enriched by our contribution and by, by our presence. Our relationships, our families are enriched by what we contribute to them as we sink our roots deep into the scriptures. So we are able more and more to enrich the lives of others. So that's what he holds out to us. This is why he encourages us to, to be people who meditate on the scriptures. Because what it will produce in life is stability, beauty, consistency, and the ability to enrich others. And then he contrasts that in verse 4 with those who walk in the counsel of the wicked. He says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. In Hebrew, it's even more striking. It's a very simple phrase, beginning of verse 4 in Hebrew. Not so the wicked. In other words, as the writer says, if you look at what I have described about the happy man who meditates on the Scripture, everything I've said about him is not true of those who walk in the council of the world. Uh, you, don't find, you find instead of consistency, your life becomes more inconsistent. Instead of increasing stability, it becomes increasingly unstable, 
more vulnerable to caving in under pressure. Instead of becoming more beautiful, there's an increasing ugliness. Instead of being able to enrich the lives of others, there's an increasing selfishness and self-centeredness. The wicked, he says, are not so. But instead, they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And this is the picture he uses to describe those who follow the counsel of the world. Those who follow the counsel of God in the scriptures are like a firmly planted tree, strong and beautiful and leafy. But he says those who follow the counsel of the wicked are like chaff. Referring here to the harvesting procedures in Palestine at that time, they would build threshing floors on elevated hills or mounds, clear a flat place on the top. All the grain would be brought in from the fields and dumped on this threshing floor. And then late in the afternoon when the winds would kick up, they'd take these giant winnowing forks and they'd take this grain and they would throw it into the air. And the grain, because of its weight, would fall back to the threshing floor, but the chaff, the husks and the skin that surrounded the grain, would be blown away by the wind. It became a picture then for something which is trivial and worthless and insubstantial. A friend of mine who grew up on a farm in Montana describes the thrashing machines used to come to their farm at, at harvest time. And they would dump all of the harvested grain into the back of this thrashing machine and it would beat the grain up and the kernels would fall out through a tube into the back of a pickup truck to be taken off to, to granaries and silos and the straw would be would be kicked out another tube off to one side. But it says the worst part of it was the chaff. This would just be spewn out up into the air and it would just float in the air and it would get in your nostrils and you'd breathe it in and it would stick to your sweaty skin and get down the, the back of your shirt. It became uh, universally a picture for something which is worthless, of no substance and no value. And that's what the writer is, is saying to us here. If you want a life of substance, then the way to, to, to generate a life which has substance and quality and value and worth to it is to sink your mind and heart into the scriptures and meditate on them and allow them to govern the way you live. The alternative is to live a life which doesn't count for anything, which is worthless, which doesn't amount to anything. Then in verses 5 and 6, he shows the ultimate results. In verses 3 and 4, we see the result in this life. In verses 5 and 6, the ultimate result. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, he says, will not stand in the judgment nor in the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This is a contrast to verse 1. It says eventually people must make the choice whether they will stand in the path of sinners or stand in the assembly of the righteous. Only two choices. And those who spend a life pursuing the counsel of the world will not stand in the judgment. That is, the picture is all of us standing before God in judgment. And one by one, those who have followed the counsel of the world will not be able to stand, will not have a leg to stand on. They will they'll have to sit, self-condemned as they stand before the judge. A seminary professor of mine told us a story in class one day about a man who had gone to a revival in which he was taught that he could be entirely sanctified. He could receive a second work of grace and be, be, be made sinless from that day forward and, and, and be perfect from that day on. And uh, six months later, he attended a uh, service at the same church, and there was a sharing time. And he stood up in, in this sharing time, sitting right in the front of the building, in front of the room, and stood up and said, I would like to praise God. I was received a second work of grace uh, six months ago, and was entirely sanctified, and in six months I have not sinned once. Praise God. And just at that point, his wife, whom he didn't know was there, stood up in the back row and said, Yoo-hoo, honey, I'm here. 
And uh, what happened is once the guy realized that his wife was there who knew better, he just sat down like a rock. And it struck me as an illustration of this, that sinners will not be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous. Uh, They will be self-condemned by their own deeds. And the ultimate explanation he gives in verse 6 is this reason. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The reason they will stand in the day of judgment when others fall is that the Lord knows their way. Now, by knows, the writer obviously means more than simply that he is aware of. But the, but the point is that he watches over and protects and guards the way of the righteous. The picture I have in my mind is, is of God with kind of a bird's eye view hovering above us. And he sees us as we make our way through life. And because we have taken refuge in him, he protects us and he watches us. And as we begin to drift off course, he gently nudges us back on the track. And if our foot slips, he's there to catch us and pick us up and set us back on the path. And, and if, we, if we're inclined to take a wrong turn, he's there to gently redirect us back, back to the path. But the wicked who have not taken refuge in God, who have an indifference, who scoff at spiritual things, do not have the privilege of having God watch over their path. And therefore, their, their way just peters out into nothing. The way of the wicked, he says, will perish. It'll just dribble off into nothing, and death is the final result. lived in the Bay Area, as I mentioned, for a number of years, and one of the striking landmarks there for about 10 or 12 years was an incompleted overpass over Highway 101. It was supposed to be a junction between Interstate 680 and lead traffic onto Highway 101, but they must have run out of money halfway through the project because the overpass swept up majestically eight lanes into the air, 150 feet above the ground, and then just quit, just ended. And for 12 years, it sat like that, a monument to poor planning and underfinancing. But that's a picture uh, of what the writer is talking about, the, the way uh, of the wicked uh, will perish. You know, Jesus made the same contrast in Matthew 7. There is a narrow gate and a narrow path which leads to life, and a broad gate and a broad path which leads to destruction, just like that. Interstate uh, 680, it looks broad, spacious, roomy. From, the, from this side, it looks like it'll take you exactly where you want to go. But to follow that path is, is to lead to certain death and destruction. To go back to Pilgrim, I think what the writer is encouraging us to do is if we have never uh, taken the step of entering that narrow wicked gate and pursuing the way of the righteous, then he would invite us to do that this morning. And if we have chosen that path, then he, he would encourage us to continue on that narrow road, even though it's bumpy and rocky. And he would encourage us along the way to sink our roots deep into the Scripture and to meditate on them. Well, we will um, celebrate uh, the Lord's table together now. The ushers will come forward while I am praying. And Martha will come and sing uh, to us a song which is based on the Scripture takes its lyrics right from the scriptures themselves, and this would be an opportunity to begin to meditate even in these next few minutes over the passage of scripture that Marshall will sing uh, to us. Let's um, pray, and then we will take the Lord's table together. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of your revelation, that you leave us in no doubt about where happiness and satisfaction are to be found. I pray for each one of us in this room that you would make us men and women who meditate in your instructions day and night, who learn the the secret and the art of, of taking your scripture and dwelling on it and pondering it and extracting truth 
from it. And we trust that you, through that process, will do as you've promised in this psalm, make us more stable and beautiful, uh, consistent people who are able to enrich others. Pray now as we turn to your table that you would make this a time of remembrance for us, that as we partake of the bread which reminds us of your body uh, broken for us, as we partake of the cup which speaks of your blood to give us forgiveness, that this would be a, be a meaningful time of reminder and worship for us. Amen.